This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our expert panel discussion on international law and sea level rise, human rights, displacement, maritime zones, and biodiversity. As we gather, we acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional owners on, of the land on which we gather, and we pay our respects to their elders, past and present. We are very fortunate today to have uh, an eminent panel of experts to discuss the implications of uh, sea level rise with us today. The first is Associate Professor Stephen Humphreys from the London School of Economics. He holds a PhD from Cambridge and was formerly the research director at the International Council on Human Rights Policy in Geneva and before that a senior officer at the Open Society Institute's Justice Initiative in New York and Budapest. His research interests include critical and historical inquiry into the rule of law, law and development, climate change, human rights, the laws of war, international environmental legal history and most recently privacy and data subject rule. His work on climate change has been cited by the IPCC, the World Bank, the UN High Commissioner on Human Rights, and many others. His publications include the monograph, Theatre of the Rule of Law, and the edited volume, Human Rights and Climate Change, both with Cambridge University Press. His most recent publication is an article in the current edition of Humanity Journal entitled, Conscience in the Data Sphere. Our second speaker is Professor Jane McAdam. She is Scientia Professor of Law and Director of the Andrew and Renata Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law here at UNSW. She is an Australian Research Council Future Fellow, a non-resident senior fellow in foreign policy at the Brookings Institution in Washington DC, a research associate at Oxford University's Refugee Studies Centre, and an associated senior fellow at the Fritjof Nansen Institute in Norway. She publishes widely in international refugee law and forced migration with a particular focus on climate change, disasters and displacement. Her books on that subject include Climate Change, Forced Migration and International Law and Climate Change and Displacement, Multidisciplinary Perspectives. Professor McAdam is the Joint Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of, in of Refugee Law, and, uh, which is the leading journal in the field. She serves on a number of international committees, including as co-rapporteur of the International Law Association's Committee on International Law and Sea Level Rise, a member of the Consultative Committee of the Nansen Initiative on Disaster-Induced Cross-Border Displacement, and a member of the Advisory Board of the Asia-Pacific Migration and Environment Network. She holds a Doctorate in Law from the University of Oxford, and first class honours in Law and History from the University of Sydney. Our final speaker will be Professor Rosemary Rafuse, who has been a professor here at UNSW Law since 2008, and since 2010 has also held an appointment as a conjoint professor in the Faculty of Law at Lund University in Sweden. She is a visiting professor at the University of Göteborg, an associated senior fellow at the Fitchhoff Nansen Institute, and an associated researcher in the Centre for Water, Oceans and Sustainability Law at the University of Utrecht. Rosemary researches and teaches in the area of public international law in general and more specifically in the law of the sea and international environmental law. In particular, her research focuses on oceans governance, high seas fisheries, protection of the marine environment in areas beyond national jurisdiction, 
and the normative effects of climate change on international law. She is the author of Non-Flag non State Enforcement in High Seas Fisheries and editor of the Research Handbook on International Marine Environmental Law, Protection of the Environment in Relation to Armed Conflict, The Challenge of Food Security, International Policy and Regulatory Frameworks, and International Law in the Era of Climate Change. She's also the author of numerous journal articles, book chapters, conference and seminar papers in these and other areas of international law. She's on the editorial and advisory boards of a number of international law journals and is a member of the IUCN Commission on Environmental Law, co-chair of its sub-working group on high seas governance and a member of its Arctic Task Force. She regularly advises governments, intergovernmental and non-governmental organisations. She has a Bachelor of Laws from Queen's University an LLM from the University of Cambridge, a PhD from the University of Utrecht, and an Honorary Doctor of Laws from Lund University. Please join me in welcoming our experts for today. We will hear from uh, each of our speakers briefly in turn, and then we'll have time for questions at the end. And just a note that today's event is being recorded uh, for a, a video on the internet and also for our podcast. So please, if bear that in mind when you're asking a question, and if you would not like your question to be um, broadcast, then please come let us know at the end. But now it's my pleasure to welcome Associate Professor Stephen Humphries to address us. Thank you very much, uh, Francis, and um, thank you for inviting me here to be a panel with uh, Rosemary, on whom I've been at a number of, uh, on a number of panels in the past, <laughs> and Jane, whose work, of course, I know very well. We were together on an IBA uh, task force on climate change justice, but we never actually met until last week. Um, I am, of course, aware of the extraordinary work that uh, Rosemary and Jane Evans have been doing with the IAA and Sea Level Rise. I notice that the IAA mandate also includes uh, human rights action, uh, nationality, statelessness, and human rights. So I suppose I'm not entirely alien here in, in, in raising the issue of climate change uh, and human rights. Um, because I've been told strictly to keep to 10 to 12 minutes, I'm going to use a text. Um, and since I'm opening, and this is a potentially huge area, what I thought I would do is give a big picture perspective uh, on the relevance of uh, human rights to climate change uh, in the context of sea level rise. So, um, I thought that a good place to start here. Yeah. might be to go to a uh, statement from um, the Office of the High Commissioner of Human Rights into the belly of the beast, as it were. Um, the Office has taken to releasing statements and reports on climate change ever since about 2007. Um, and this is a report from a uh, meeting of the Human Rights Council that took place a year ago, in fact a press statement, uh, on the 6th of March 2015, um, which was devoted to the issue of sea level rise. They had the presence of Kiribati and Tuvalu present, as well as some representatives from Bangladesh. I wanted to point to some of what the office had to say about this. This was a, this was a grounding statement about human rights and, and sea level rise. It, it, I'll just read out what they're saying. Human-induced climate change is not only an assault on the world's shared ecosystem, but it also undercuts the rights to health, to food, to water and sanitation, to adequate housing, 
and for the people of small island states and coastal communities, even the right to self-determination. If, and I want to emphasize this if here, the islands of Kiribati and Tuvalu disappear beneath the waves, all the trappings of a modern state, government buildings, courts, hospitals, and schools will vanish with them. Their people's right to self-determination will be undermined. Their leaders will have to find ways of reconstituting their states elsewhere or persuade another government to issue them uh, passports, welfare, and protection. And if they can't do this, these climate change refugees will become stakeholders. So anybody in the room who's even passingly familiar, I think, with evolving climate change policy will find this statement a little surprising. Um, it seems quite out of sync with where policy has, has, has gone in the last 10 years, uh, particularly with the key organizations you will see on the rise. The most egregious deviation, I suppose, from policy orthodoxy is the reference to climate change refugees, a term they use a number of times in the statement, actually. I don't want to uh, open up a controversial issue here. Jane, of course, has done extensive work on that. But my sense is that if the office is using this term in March 2015, 10 years at least into the human rights debate, it can't be accidental. It can't be unaware of how much attack the term has come under in that time. Um, the second deviation I want to reference here, which I think is more significant, is the degree to which what they're concerned with is climate change mitigation policy rather than adaptation. So the statement is full of these big ifs. If this happens, then there are human rights consequences. In other words, if we don't address climate change, the causes of climate change, then we will have human rights harms to deal with. Um, this also is odd. Today, the human rights consequences of climate change in general, and see otherwise in particular, are generally addressed in the language of adaptation. What can be done to meet the rights and needs of those vulnerable to climate change effects, which are happening and are going to happen? And I think this seems more practical and pragmatic. People are experiencing harms and we need to know how to deal with them. Um, and adaptation policy invites a familiar register for human rights and humanitarian um, organizations and NGOs. We hear or we expect to hear about the urgency of the situation, about emergencies, about risk, about resilience, about the institutions involved, and about grassroots participation. Um, and this is also true, I think, of the key players in the sea level rise debate today. Uh, they speak predominantly in the language of humanitarian an adaptation type uh, policy. So UNHCR or IOM, though they often appear to be a single wheel, uh, or in the instruments such as the IDP guidelines on, on internally displaced persons, or the Nansen principles, which Jane may some, say something too. We're, we're dealing with adaptation. Um, and that's also true, I think, in the way the human rights debate has evolved with regard to climate change. So in particular today, we tend to hear about the case law of the European Court of Human Rights in cases such as Lopez Oster versus Spain, or Honor Yildiz in Turkey, or the two Russian cases, Budyeva and Fadiyeva. These are all cases in which uh, the consequences of natural disasters are, are dealt with in human rights terms by the court. And what we get is a language of duties on the state to monitor unfolding disasters, to prevent them, to inform the public, and to investigate. Um, in particular, in the Budyeva case, we have this blurred line appearing between what might be called natural disasters and man-made disasters. And of course, that matters when we think about human rights. Uh, and beyond all that, again, we have the increasing discussion of mainstreaming human rights into adaptation policy, which follows an old debate about mainstreaming human rights into development. 
So that's kind of the policy seen at the moment. And in that context, it's, uh, I think, really quite surprising that this is how the Office of the High Commissioner chooses to frame the issue a year ago. So what I'm going to do now is make a defense of this, actually. This apparently naive, I think, uh, invocation of climate change mitigation as the relevant issue for, for human rights. Um, and I'm going to talk about this as uh, a conflict, if you like, between realism and pragmatism. Okay, so while adaptation policy seems like a pragmatic approach to climate change problems, I'm going to suggest that although it is pragmatic, it mightn't actually be realistic. Okay? Now why would I say that? Because in order to have a functional adaptation policy, you need to have a sense of what it is you're adapting to. And in order to know what you're adapting to, you actually need to know where greenhouse gas emissions are likely to stabilize. So if you don't really know where mitigation policy is leading, it's actually quite difficult to come up with an adaptation policy to deal with the consequences. Okay. Um, the problem here is that greenhouse gas emission stabilization is a moving target. It has, of course, always been, and it continues to be even the way of Paris. To illustrate what I mean by that, this is a graph from the most recent IPCC report, the uh, fifth assessment report, which shows sea level rise under two, uh, well, under four scenarios, actually, two of which I'm going to talk about. Um, the four scenarios are referred to as RCPs, which stands for Representative Concentration Pathways. They represent, they're, they're produced by four modeling agencies, and they represent the work of hundreds of different modelers of future climate change patterns. Um, there is, they were, uh, so the scientific community was asked and invited by the IPCC to produce these reports because they wanted a sense of what is the policy scenario that can actually give us a two degree world. How do we get in under two degrees? We didn't have any sense of that, and that's what uh, we get here. The relevant scenario is RCP 2.6. The 2.6 stands for watts per square meters, the forcing effect of greenhouse gases on the, on the atmosphere. Um, now, it will turn out that RCP 2.6 is incredibly difficult to achieve. Let's set that aside for the moment. That's the two-degree world pathway. The other pathway I want to point to is RCP 8.5. That's the pathway we're on at the moment. It leads to a four-degree world. Um, and if you look at this graph, what you see that in terms of sea level rise, RCP 2.6 is coming in at about 0.45 of a meter by 2100. RCP 8.6 is about 0.75 by 2100. But at the extreme ends, it goes higher. It's more like a meter sea level rise if we continue on our current path, if we don't take the most optimistic assumption. Uh, and actually, that graph referred to 2000. If we, actually, if, we, if we go to another graph from the same report, AR5, giving us the full picture from 1700, we're looking at increases beyond even that. At least 0.6 under RCP 2.6, and at the upper end, 1.2 meter sea level rise by 2100 under our current emissions pathway. Okay? Um, well, I don't seem to have my notes, so I'll just continue with the rest of it uh, as we go. Um, beyond that, again, I think the thing we need to know is that these are estimates uh, in a best case scenario of coming in under 500 ppm of carbon dioxide equivalent um, in our uh, pathways. 
Um, according to the IPCC, if we uh, go above 700 parts per million of carbon dioxide, I think this is a term on later at this point, um, the likelihood is closer to three meters wide over the long term. Uh, so I think if I were um, Bangladesh, I would need to be paying attention to this kind of information in order to know how I should be adapting. And to put that into context, another quick graph, only RCP 2.6, that's the green line here, is coming in under 500 parts per million of carbon dioxide equivalent by 2100. Our current path is way over 700, at 1250. Um, okay, what would that mean for, say, Bangladesh? You have something like this. Um, at a one meter sea level rise, 17,000 kilometers squared of land is submerged, 15 million people affected, that's the middle picture. Once it's closer to 1.5, 18 million people affected, 22,000 kilometers. Um, and the next graph again, and I'm reaching the end here, is the most worrying of all. This shows how we're supposed to reach RCP 2.6 in our energy use over the next 100 years. It's a little bit dense, and I'm not going to go into it in any detail. The key point to notice is that as against business, what we're doing currently here on the left, to get to RCP 2.6, two degree world, we have to bring our carbon emissions below zero. That means relying on nuclear, bioenergy, and in particular, carbon capture and storage and sinks. So we continue to use fossil fuels on this model, but we have to um, bring the carbon levels down by huge uh, reliance on technologies. Um, now, my understanding of this is that for a country like Bangladesh, interested in the human rights consequences of climate change, they need to be thinking about how to get those technologies. That might be their key question in order to head off the disastrous human rights consequences uh, of uh, an RCP 8.5 world. Um, I think that's quite a lot of information, but it's around time, but I'll be happy to take any questions about that. Stephen for uh, setting the scene so well because what I want to speak about is the mobility consequences that relate to sea level rise and the attendant human rights implications that they might have. Before I do that though I should just um, give you the apologies of Chris Ward who was going to uh, chair today's session. He is actually the, he's, he's stuck in court, but he is the Australian uh, branch president of the International Law Association. And as has somewhat been alluded to, um, both Rosemary and I are part of the International Law Association's Committee on International Law and Sea Level Rise, where we are examining these and related issues. So some of what I'm going to talk about comes from our interim report, um, but there are other issues that we're going to go on and explore in the remaining two years, I think, we have with that mandate. The first point I wanted to make is that the way in which climate change is going, and, and sea level rise in particular, is going to impact on human movement um, is, is a complex phenomenon, it's non-linear, and climate change alone will never be the sole driver of movement. So what we're talking about is the way in which climate change itself interacts with other economic, political, and uh, social drivers of displacement or stresses that themselves may affect migration. 
So in many cases, it's going to be impossible to disentangle the impacts of sea level rise from these other kinds of stresses that people face. I should also note that sea level rise doesn't automatically mean that people are going to have to leave their homes. And this is where some of the innovations, the technological um, developments that, that Stephen was uh, talking about, as well as legal and policy responses, are going to shape the extent to which people um, are able to stay in their homes and for how long. It's also going to affect whether they can live a dignified life while they're there, and that, of course, is, is imperative, or whether people are going to be living but facing uh, more and more vulnerability over time. The other point to note is that not all communities are necessarily going to have the same needs. Um, we are talking about both developed and developing states. We're not just talking about the small island states, although they, of course, um, are the ones that obviously are, are front page on this issue. Um, but this means also that particular individuals and communities, vulnerable groups within those communities, are going to face different kinds of pressures and their needs may vary at different points along the scale. We don't really have very clear numbers about people who might be uh, displaced because of the impacts of sea level rise. Partly that's because it's very difficult to ascertain that, particularly projecting over a longer time frame. But what we do know is that climate change uh, has the, the trend, uh, what climate change does is it means that uh, many kinds of disasters happen in a more intense way, in a more frequent way. So cyclones, for instance, become much more intense in their impacts. And we do know that since 2008, disasters have displaced an average of more than 26 million people. Now, most of that movement occurred within the boundaries of a single state, so people weren't crossing international borders, and that's really important to, to bear in mind as well when it comes to the role of international law here. It also causes us to reflect on situations where movement may need to become cross-border, and this is where law and policy can determine is that kind of movement going to be after the fact, an emergency, displacement, people scrambling to find a solution for themselves, or can we somehow create more streamlined, um, planned options for migration in advance? And of course, can we avoid movement altogether if we have the right kinds of disaster risk response and adaptation strategies in place? Of course, we're not also just talking about land being submerged as the, the trigger point for when people need to move. Land may become uninhabitable because you can't grow crops anymore because the water supply has been uh, corrupted. And of course, I think when we often see in the media these sorts of ideas that islands will sink and people then will have to move, and all that language of sinking islands is, is disliked by a lot of the people who live in those places. Um, people are going to have to move well before land is totally inundated. And so this question of how do we preempt that and how do we provide pathways for people is extremely important. So what I want to do briefly now is talk about some of the strategies that can be put in place uh, to address this kind of movement, as well as where some of the legal and policy gaps are. First thing we know, and the, the Nansen Initiative on Disaster-Induced Cross-Border Displacement, which recently concluded the first stage of its work, uh, has done an enormous 
comprehensive study in five sub-regions of the world, engaging with communities directly about their needs and desires. And what that body of evidence, in addition to other materials, shows, most people don't want to leave their homes at all. So the first thing that we need to be thinking about is disaster risk reduction and climate change adaptation. Um, this seeks to avert damage where possible, lessen the negative impacts when it does occur, protect the most susceptible people through risk and vulnerability assessments, build up people's resilience, and take multi-sector approaches to creating national climate change adaptation strategies. And these elements, or some of those elements, are highlighted in the Sendai framework on disaster risk reduction um, that was adopted last year. The important thing is that by enhancing people's resilience, any displacement that then is triggered may only require a, a more short-term emergency response as people get out of harm's way. But of course, we also need to be cognizant of the fact that in some contexts, people won't be able to return, and that's where the next uh, set of strategies or interventions um, is focused. I think we have to recognise that some displacement is inevitable and some cross-border displacement would seem to be inevitable as well. By displacement, I mean forced movement where people really don't have a choice but to go as opposed to migration, which has a sense of some kind of voluntary, uh, more planned kind of movement. Stephen alluded to some of the tools that are already relevant in this context. So the UN's guiding principles on internal displacement are pertinent, primarily because most movement that we're going to see will be within countries. So the imperative there is for national governments to ensure that they have implemented this framework, it's a, a soft law framework, but that they have responded and recognised what kinds of actions they need to take in that kind of situation. So the challenge there is about the operational implementation of the guiding principles. At the international level, we have, of course, the Refugee Convention, but it's pretty ill-attuned in most cases relating to climate change-related movement. In short, to be a refugee, you need to demonstrate you have a well-founded fear of persecution for reasons of your race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership of a particular social group, and that you're unable or unwilling to return to your country. And the implication, of course, is that the state is unable to protect you. There may be some cases where this applies, but they are going to be quite limited. Um, they may be, for instance, where a, a more conventional refugee claim would in any case arise. So, for example, if there has been um, sea level rise that means you can't access uh, areas of where there are fresh water, well then, if the government deliberately withheld access to you, that's where the refugee claim would come in, the backdrop being climate change, sea level rise, but that itself not found in the claim. Human rights law as well, complementary protection, protection from arbitrary deprivation of life, um, inhuman treatment may at some point have a role to play as well, but this is not a very uh, well-attuned mechanism for resolving displacement. I think while there are legal gaps, we also need to recognise where there's stuff that can, we can do right now. And this is where I want to um, move to look at things like humanitarian or temporary stay arrangements that governments can create, whether on a bilateral level, whether on a, a more um, general level, so that when people are displaced, there is a mechanism by which they can regularise their status quickly and get help. 
Countries also need to enhance voluntary migration opportunities so that people can move before disaster strikes or the slow onset impacts of, of sea level rise, for instance, render land uninhabitable. Um, and the, the interaction between sh uh, slow onset and sudden disasters is an important one because what we've seen is that very often it is a, a, a series of sudden onset disasters in the context of a slower phenomenon like drought that is the thing that ultimately keeps people over the edge. So rather than thinking sea level rise might take hundreds of years, that's the time frame, it's likely to be these intermittent events that are the, the triggers of movement. So how can we create schemes for people to move in a voluntary way, whether that be through labour migration, education, family um, based visas or the like. And this is what Kiribati has termed a migration with dignity approach. Another thing that comes up in this context is the idea of planned relocation of a community. Generally what is envisaged here is again movement within a country. And yet even that is incredibly difficult to, um, to have happened effectively, as we know from the development context, where big dams have been built, people have been moved, and in most cases they have ended up in even more vulnerable situations and impoverished. When cross-border planned relocation is mooted, the situation becomes even more complicated, and there have been very few, but nonetheless some, cross-border relocations of communities in the Pacific in the 1940s um, onwards, which I've studied in great detail, and what they show is that this is a very, very fraught experience. It's the reason why Pacific communities themselves say planned relocation is a matter of last resort, and shows the importance of engaging, consulting with um, both the communities that may move, as well as the communities into which they might be received. In all of the options I've flagged, obviously human dignity and the principle of non-discrimination needs to be front and centre. The final point I make here is that we need to connect up the dots between different policy areas. So we need to link climate change to disasters, to food security, to urbanisation, to, to all these other issues and not view it as a, a one-issue response. And I think that siloing of policy, both at the international and the national level, is one of the biggest hurdles that we need to overcome to ensure that we do have well-attuned approaches going into the future. Thank you. Um, Jean suggested that there was nothing in migration law that was well attuned to dealing with climate change and its effects. I want to tell you there's actually nothing in international law at all that is well attuned to dealing with climate change uh, and its effects. And I'm going to take you on a slightly different um, trip. Now, how does this work? There we go. A slightly different journey. Um, as a member of the committee, Jane deals uh, with the human rights and migration issues. I deal with the law of the sea issues and am trying to uh, introduce some of the other uh, issues into the committee whose mandate is to study the effects of sea level rise and international law writ large, not just with uh, law of the sea and human rights issues, although those seem to be the two most important areas and subsequently we'll start to look at how those areas come together in the migration and the statehood issues that Stephen's also touched on. Um, so I'm going to do a quick shift of mindset to the law of the sea now to talk a little bit about the uh, issues that arise 
for the committee and for international lawyers uh, relating to sea level rise and the law of the sea and then look at some issues relating to biodiversity. Uh, we know that the causes of sea level rise are thermal expansion and uh, glacial ice cap melt. And Stephen has explained the different scenarios that exist anywhere between 0.26 of a meter sea level rise up to one meter or more sea level rise by 2010. So I won't go into those. The IPCC has given us its projections. It says no matter what happens, we're going to continue to have sea level rise for about 2,000 years. Um, and I think it was Stephen made the point that it's really difficult to know what your adaptation rules, how you can adapt to something that you don't know exactly what's going to happen yet. So if you're talking about law of the sea issues and biodiversity issues, how do you adapt to something where the sea level rise could be 0.26 of a meter or the sea level rise could be in the or whatever? It's, it makes it extremely difficult. But one of the most incredibly difficult parts for international law of the sea is this problem of maritime zones because states all claim their maritime zones on the basis of what we call baselines. The normal baseline being the uh, low water mark along the coastline. And those maritime zones can stretch out to 200 nautical miles, and in some cases even beyond 200 nautical miles. And this gives rise to what we call the baseline dilemma. We have maritime zones measured from the normal low water line. We have uh, the normal baselines uh, are considered as a matter of international law, and that's been confirmed by the Baselines Committee of the International Law Association and by various other judgments from around the world. Baselines are ambulatory. When sea level changes and the coastline changes, the baseline changes. But that causes, it, it's not an issue if you're talking of small changes over large areas, but if you're talking about a large change over a small area, or even a large change over a large area, that has implications for your maritime zones. Because if your maritime zone is 200 nautical miles from your, the outer edge is 200 nautical miles from your baseline, if your baseline now recedes 20, 30 kilometers inland, what does that do for the outer edge of your maritime zone? And there's nothing in the law of the sea that tells you the answer to those questions. So ambulatory baselines have a number of implications for the extent and the limits of your maritime claims. Where does the Australian Exclusive Economic Zone end? That has implications for where Australians and others can fish, for example, or where they can drill for oil and gas, various other things. We have issues with respect to islands, an island which is permanently inhabited, can sustain a life of its own, generates all the full maritime claims, exclusive economic zone, continental shelf, etc. A rock, which is not capable of sustaining human habitation, does not generate all the maritime zones. It only generates the territorial seas. Um, you may be sitting there thinking, oh gee, I wonder if that's why China is building all these uh, facilities on these little sand keys in the South China Sea. The answer is yes, that's why they're doing it, because if you can sustain human habitation, you generate all of your maritime zones. There's a lot more going on than meets the eye. Um, but what happens if, sea as a result of sea level rise, islands become rocks? Do they lose those maritime zones? And then what happens if those rocks are submerged entirely? Do they lose even the territorial sea? And that's then when we get into the subsequent issues of statehood, which we're not talking about today. Also, uh, issues of delimitation of maritime boundaries. If you have delimited your maritime boundary between two states, like Australia and East Timor, and you say that the boundary goes here, well, if sea level rise occurs on either or both sides, is that going to affect 
the location of a maritime boundary that has, for example, been drawn on the basis of the equidistance rule, the rule that says the maritime boundary goes right between the middle. Well, what happens if the sea level rises on one side but not on the other? So one side loses territory, does the maritime boundary shift, whatever. There are massive implications in the law of the sea uh, relating to uh, sea level rise. And there's a real physical problem here because you might think there's a very easy answer. Oh, just tell states to build coastal protection along their coast to ensure that the baselines uh, re retain their permanent status. But of course, that's it's, A, it's extremely expensive, and B, it has massive environmental consequences, and C, it's just not practically feasible for vast areas of the world. So there is a real need for the law of the sea to develop some sort of mechanisms to ensure that we can preserve the stability of the maritime claims that states have made in the last 20, 30, 40 years as a result of our wonderfully comprehensive complex law of the sea. Um, just to give you some ideas of the options that are being explored and that are discussed by the committee and others for how we might resolve these dilemmas under the Law of the Sea Convention, Article 5, uh, states are supposed to fix their um, baselines by drawing them on charts, official charts that are then filed with the United Nations. Well, you choose your chart. The state has the freedom to choose the chart, so you might choose a chart that advantages you the best. But then there's a real problem with drawing lines on charts and saying that because the line has been drawn on a chart, it's now permanent. If sea level rise occurs as a physical fact, you get a disjuncture between the line on the map and the physical reality on the ground, which means that fishing boats that are relying on a particular chart uh, may find themselves in deeper water or shallower water. It becomes impossible to work as a practical matter. There is a suggestion that states might increase the use of what we call straight baselines. In other words, you don't follow the coast, you just draw straight lines all the way around your country or around particular islands, which is a very convenient way of doing things, but it can close off vast areas of the ocean, and they're highly contentious even at the best of times, so we don't really want to be encouraging their use. Um, they have to be used with caution, and there are specific rules about their use. You can encourage states to establish the outer limits of their continental shelf beyond 200 nautical miles, for example. You may or may not be aware that Australia is the first country in the world to have successfully finalized its claims beyond 200 nautical miles to the continental shelf. The Law of the Sea Convention actually allows states to draw them as definitive limits. So once those are drawn, they're permanent. So you could adopt the same rationale and say, well, once we've drawn our exclusive economic zone limits, those are permanent as well. Or you could ensure that you have your maritime boundary delimitation treaties negotiated with your, part, with your uh, neighboring states. Because if you put geographical coordinates in that treaty as to where your maritime boundary goes, those geographical coordinates aren't going to change regardless of sea level rise. And there are rules about fundamental change of circumstances in international law that don't apply to maritime boundary treaties. Well, at least they don't appear to apply. That's a question that will have to be examined in more depth. Uh, but it seems that once you've got your treaty that says the maritime boundary goes here, that's where it stays. And in fact, that has led the Attorney General's Office and South Pacific uh, Commission to uh, undertake a project to assist the South Pacific Island states to finalize all of their maritime boundary delimitation agreements for that very reason. 
um, then you can, uh, instead of declaring that your baselines are the normal baseline low water line along the coasts, you can set the geographical coordinates and declare them in that manner, and then they're fixed. Uh, so what are the new approaches that are being suggested for dealing with uh, these substantive issues and what are the problems that arise? First of all, the main question that we have to grapple with in the committee and as international lawyers is, do we freeze baselines? Do we want to say that baselines are going to stay here forever? Or do we freeze the outer limits? There are all sorts of technical issues with that because the Law of the Sea Convention says you can have a 200-mile exclusive economic zone. If you freeze the outer limits but don't freeze the baselines and the baselines move, you now have a more than 200 nautical mile exclusive economic zone, which is inconsistent with the Law of the Sea Convention, which is why I suggested at the outset not much in international law. In fact, nothing is well attuned to deal with climate change and its effects, even the constitution of the oceans. So there are a number of things then from what time do you say that you're going to freeze the baselines? If you decide you'll say baselines are stuck in this place, what date do we choose? Do we choose 1982, 1985, 2010, 2050? Because baselines have changed all over the world. There are a number of possible procedural mechanisms I won't go into, but just so you're aware that this is an issue, and there are many people in the world who are working on trying to resolve these issues. There's been a great deal written about the law of the sea issues, um, so much so that uh, I got rather bored with it in the committee and suggested the committee should start trying to look at some of the other more interesting issues, one of which was sea level rise and biodiversity. Because of the effects on biodiversity, we have primary effects, the physical impact of sea level rise on low-lying areas, and then we have the secondary impacts of sea level rise, biodiversity that tries to move out of a low-lying coastal area which is no longer habitable to it. It tries to move, but there's nowhere for it to move because of what we call coastal squeeze. Humans like to live near coasts, and they like to develop near coasts, and we have already degraded the habitats near coasts. So where is this coastal biodiversity going to move to? So sea level rise is going to have major impacts, uh, both primary and secondary. And if you look at what the IPCC says, in fact, evolutionary rates simply aren't fast enough for sensitive animals and plants to adapt to the projected rate of future change. And the estimates are for extinction of species likely to be into the hundreds of thousands. Um, we have a very complex, large regime for the protection of biodiversity in international law. Primarily uh, of, of importance is the Convention on Biological Diversity, but there are a number of other international treaties that relate to aspects of biodiversity and that will be impacted as well. Um, overall, I think it's safe to say that all of these regimes together are singularly ill-equipped to respond to the challenges that they're going to face when we talk about uh, uh, species changes due to climate change and due to sea level rise in particular. Um, having said that though, that I can tell you that at least some of the regimes are looking at the issue of climate change in the Convention on Biodiversity, for example. They've been studying the effects of climate change on biodiversity since 2000. 2006 to 2010, they conducted a very in-depth study of what those effects were going to be and calling for the promotion of adaptation measures. In other words, they've given up on these people realize mitigation isn't enough. We have to now adapt to the reality of sea level rise and other climate change impacts. They don't single out sea level rise as 
a particular problem anymore. It's lumped in with all the other climate change impacts, but it's one of the very specific ones in coastal areas. Um, interestingly, uh, in 2011, the uh, parties to the CBD adopted the Aichi biodiversity targets, and I just had to put these up. I love them. Uh, in 2011, the, one of the objectives, target five, was to have the rate of biodiversity loss globally by 2020. Target 10 is to minimize anthropogenic pressures on coral reefs and vulnerable ecosystems by last year. <laughs> Um, dare I mention Great Barrier Reef. Um, and target 11 was by 2020, at least 10% of coastal and marine areas are supposed to be protected, and you're supposed to have this well-connected system of protected areas so that the biodiversity can move, etc., etc. Um, even when these were being adopted, quite frankly, they were already admitting that it's going to be impossible to meet those targets. It's a very sad state of affairs. The World Heritage Convention, and unfortunately one of our other colleagues couldn't be with us today, so I'm mentioning this sort of on his behalf, but also on my behalf. The World Heritage Convention, you're probably aware, protects both cultural and natural heritage, and some of the sites are mixed. Some of them are both cultural and natural. Some of them are only cultural. Some of them are only natural. There are 79 sites that are listed as either natural or mixed, 18 of which are threatened by sea level rise, and nine of the cultural-only sites are threatened by sea level rise. And the current projections are that at least one-fifth of all World Heritage sites all around the world, both cultural and natural, are going to be underwater in coming uh, centuries. That has implications for cultural law, but it also has implications for the biodiversity that exists within those sites. There are possibilities, you might say, of listing uh, these threatened sites on the World Heritage Endangered list, um, but listing them isn't going to stop the adverse effects of sea level rise. Um, and sea level rise in particular may render obsolete the outstanding universal values that were there that got these things listed on the World Heritage list in the first place. You can't just move the boundaries of the area because outside of the current area, it, there are no outstanding universal values. So we're talking about areas that will be totally lost to future generations, to our generations, and to future generations. And a similar problem exists with, for example, the Ramsar Convention on Protection of International uh, Wetlands of International Importance. We're supposed to uh, conserve them and wisely use them. And wise use is actually defined as the maintenance of their ecological character. That is the obligation that we have on ourselves right now. 864 of the 2,208 Ramsar Convention sites are coastal sites, and they are threatened by sea level rise. 85% um, of them will be affected by a sea level rise of up to one meter, 9% of which 90% of their area is at risk. And again, it's a question of we can't simply move these wetlands because the area that you might want to move them into is already degraded by human activities. It's unlikely that the species that the mangroves will grow fast enough to relocate to a different area. What are we going to do? We're going to lose these areas. We are going to be violating our obligations to current and future generations to maintain these sites. So how are the convention mechanisms going to function in the face of these threats? 
uh, and what are some of the questions that the ILA committee that Jane and I are working on are going to be asking, will be asking for submissions from anyone who's interested in making submissions and from other members. These are just some of the questions. How are these regimes going to manage under these conditions of gross uncertainty uh, or in the face of increasing also their asset base? And do these um, regimes retain their validity or do we need to terminate these regimes? How do we terminate them? When do we terminate them? And what do we replace them with? Uh, what are the prognoses for the future? Um, so I'll just leave you with those questions and I think it's time for some discussion. very much to all three of our panelists. Um, we'll open up for a brief period of questions. So we'll collect a few questions at a time before turning over to the panel. Hi, this is so interesting. Thank you so much. Uh, I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how current policies in Australia exist that would sort of interface with the experience of people in the Pacific Islands, say, who are really on, I mean, we're the frontline situations in terms of climate change and sea level rise, and how you think they ought to change in order to make the experiences that they're going through more, yeah, how, how they should change. Take a couple more questions. Um, the fact that refugee law is not completely attuned to um, addressing um, climate change refugees, does that mean that they'll be categorised as asylum seekers and how that actually um, affects their movement and other nations' obligations if it's cross-bordered movement? I had a question about cultural heritage, and culture only exists because people make it. And so if culture, cultural sites and heritage sites are being destroyed, uh, therefore it's impacting on the humans that once enjoyed it, how do you connect, is there any connection, is there any discussion about the refugees in relation to cultural destruction? <laughs> My turn. <laughs> <laughs> so the first question was, um, what are the relevant uh, current policies in Australia uh, relating to climate change uh, related movement in the Pacific. The second, what are the implications of the sort of ill fit of international refugee law for people who are forced to move for reasons relating to climate change. And the third, uh, what are the implications for people who have to move um, in relation to cultural heritage rights affected by sea level rise. Okay, I know we've got five minutes, so <laughs> these are very big questions. Um, in terms of Australian policy at the moment, there is no, so the Australian migration policy is such that the department, the government says we have a non-discriminatory policy, therefore we don't um, discriminate against any particular national group, but nor do we offer special, special protection to any national group. So there are no particular visas per se because you face something from, you know, a threat from a particular region of the world. That said, there are um, certain programs that are designed to assist 
particular group. So for instance, there are um, visas av available, these are temporary ones, for people to come from some nominated Pacific Island countries to do things like fruit picking, um, sort of regional, rural related schemes where people come in for a short period of time to work. Um, but they're, they're nothing to do per se with climate change, but they do provide a way that people can temporarily move, you know, send remittances home gain some kind of livelihood. Um, we pioneered something that uh, never really showed up in terms of the migration program per se, but it was through development. And we allowed around 30 students a year from Kiribati to come to Australia to um, a university in Queensland to train as nurses. And if they gained their qualification, then because Australia has a shortage of nurses, um, they would qualify to have an ordinary you know, visa to work here as a nurse, which in turn could lead on to permanent residence. And that was seen as a win-win kind of arrangement because if people went home, well, they nonetheless had skills that Kiribati needed, but they were also filling a labour shortage here. Um, on occasion, there have been special protection visas to cohorts of refugees in the traditional sense to help people, for example, from Kosovo to come temporarily to Australia. Um, there are mechanisms that could be used but the fact is that in the context we're talking about now, people don't fit the refugee definition. So there's nothing stopping any government in the world from creating a special visa, but no one has really done that to date. In terms of well, what would happen if somebody showed up and said, I'm an asylum seeker from Tuvalu, I can't go home. Again, you would be put through that standard asylum process. Um, if you simply turned up on a boat, well, we know what happens then. Um, you'd be, ironically, sent back to another Pacific country um, <laughs> and wait there to have your claim processed. Um, but I think what's interesting is New Zealand has, in the last year or so, um, had a quite high-profile case from a gentleman from Kiribati on behalf of himself and his family. Um, the court it went right through to the top court to say that he wasn't a refugee but nor was he entitled to protection on human rights grounds um, and the, the basic reason was that it was said that the government of Kiribati was doing all it could to mitigate the harm and that right now he wasn't at any particular risk. So it's an interesting decision to look at. Australia through the Refugee Review Tribunal has heard cases from Tuvalu and Kiribati and other countries in the past. Um, but, but one of those sticking points right now, and we've got a project starting up uh, second half of this year looking at it, is the, this notion of imminence of harm and how imminent does harm have to be before protection might be forthcoming under human rights law. I don't know if you want to look at the cultural heritage Well, there, there, there are a couple aspects of the cultural heritage point, and that's actually our colleague Lucas, who can't be with us today. That's his area, but I remember he was telling me, you know, one of the problems is that this cultural heritage is going to become underwater cultural heritage. It'll still be cultural heritage, it'll just be covered by water. Um, and we have a different legal regime for underwater cultural heritage. Um, but I think surely that is it is the destruction of culture which also relates back to human rights and the destruction or the damage to uh, the human rights of individuals but also of groups and query you know the assignation of responsibility for those kinds of activities i think is going to be a bit difficult but how are we going to ensure the protection of the cultural heritage even as it becomes inundated 
it may be possible to take steps to protect it so that even if it's underwater, it's still there and it still represents this cultural, cultural um, heritage, the cultural um, richness of humanity. We have much cultural heritage that is currently underwater. So um, I think that's possibly. Yeah, I wouldn't add very much to that. There are, of course, human rights provisions in the uh, International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights mm -hmm. protecting cultural rights of various kinds. They include rights to access technology and science, um, but they also seem to include a right to your intellectual property, and the two rights seem to be at variance to a degree, in the, at least the way they've been interpreted uh, in international um, um, fora so, so far. So I don't know how much they help. But I want to pick up on the, on the refugee question um, for a moment, because I did throw in this thing about the Office of the High Commissioner reusing this old term, despite the fact that it's been firmly discredited uh, for just the reasons that Jane uh, put forward so succinctly. Uh, and, and you might ask, well, why do they do it? And I think they do it because, um, in sort of deference to the somewhat bolshy nature of human rights, right? they're kind of saying, it's just not enough to say that this uh, convention from 1951, which was clearly designed when there was no uh, inkling of what climate change was or, or could become, um, to say, well, that's it. They're not refugees because they're not covered with this definition. On the contrary, the post-World War II mentality that produces the Universal Declaration and the 1951 Convention might say, well, these are refugees because they're people seeking refuge. Mm. They've lost their shelter, they need refuge. It's not simply a matter of formal legal definition, it's a matter of moral obligation. And that's something we must address. And yes, it's true, everyone will point out, that we don't have instruments that address this currently. And it's, yes, it's also true that the whole idea of getting involved in international negotiations to try and produce a new instrument gives everybody the creeps, basically. Nobody <laughs> wants to do it. Um, but the story simply doesn't end there. It can't end there. We must retain this sense that something must be done. Uh, and I, I, I quite like the office wanting to do that. And I think that's one of the things that the human rights um, organizations bring to the climate change debate. They keep reminding us that we don't have a system that's good enough to handle this. We have to do something more than simply look to the existing law and say, oh dear, it's not great, but that's what we have. Um, so that's my response. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time, but it has been a really rich and fascinating discussion. So thank you very much for joining us. And please uh, join me in thanking our three panelists.